Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Welcome to the Voices in Leadership series. Uh, on behalf of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, I would like to welcome our studio audience, as well as the many viewers online uh, who are watching us live on the, webcast, uh, the website of the Voices series, and also across the University of California. We are very honored to have with us uh, today Janet Napolitano, President of the University of California, former Secretary of the US Department of Homeland Security, and former Governor of Arizona. Janet Napolitano was named the 20th president of the University of California in July 2013. She leads a university system with 10 campuses, five medical centers, three affiliated national laboratories, and a statewide agriculture and natural resources program. President Napolitano earned uh, her Bachelor of Science degree, summa cum laude, in, in political science in 1979 from Santa Clara University, where among many other accomplishments, she was the university's first female valedictorian. In 1983, she earned a law degree from the University of Virginia School of Law. And actually in uh, 2010, she was awarded the prestigious Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal, which is the highest external honor bestowed by the University of Virginia. Her career as an attorney paved her way for her role as governor of Arizona and later as Secretary of Homeland Security. And I actually had the great honor of meeting her about 10 years ago when she was governor of Arizona. And we were launching in Mexico the National Institute for Genomic Medicine. And uh, uh, through an, uh, an initiative in Arizona, they provided very valuable assistance to, to Mexico. I was then the Minister of Health there. I'd like to paraphrase several striking comments that President Napolitano made a few months ago about leadership. She said that leaders must have a, a long-term vision. They must think bigger and persuade other people that they want to be part of this something bigger. They must also have a sense of how to get it done. And then they must have the wisdom and patience to step back and let others do it. So today, we are going to partake of her wisdom and her incredible experience, her wealth of experience in leadership roles. And it will be really fascinating to see how President Napolitano views leadership and how she distinguishes it from uh, management. This discussion uh, will, of course, draw on her own leadership experience as governor, secretary, and uh, now as university uh, president. I'm very pleased that uh, Professor uh, Robert Blendon, who's the Senior Dean for Policy Translation and Leadership Development, and the Richard, uh, Richard Menchel Professor, joins um, today's discussion as the, moder uh, the moderator. So before I turn this session over to Professor Blendon, please join me in welcoming Janet Napolitano to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Leo, thank you very much. Uh, this is a very special series, and if you allow me just for a minute to talk about this, it, it's an idea which came from many students. 
And it has to do with the fact that most of us every day watch people lead global, national, state institutions. They're huge, they're distant, they're far away. Somehow we believe that they take over these institutions. They have a vision about how they're going to change where the river will go, the outcome for it. And so many students ask the question about if you take over one of these institutions, you play these roles, how do you think about where you go and what you change and how I bring people in? So the series is actually not about what we usually do, public policy, one issue or another. It's about how, how people uh, take on institutions. The reason for doing that is that those of you in the audience and those of you broader someday are going to take on some of these roles. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what would I do if I had this role? So that's how this is really structured. Uh, so usually we have a guest and they have one successful role. Uh, we have an issue here. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to deal with it. We have three very distinct, unbelievably successful roles. So what we're going to do is break the questions into uh, a period of being governor of Arizona uh, and then uh, take some questions uh, which have been uh, written in or passed uh, around, and then we're going to go to uh, Homeland Security. Uh, for those of you from uh, other nations, uh, the United States did not have a department like this until after uh, 2001. And the tragedy led the United States to put together a huge range of agencies with uh, somewhat different cultures and mission in one place. And becoming cabinet secretary of that. Uh, also, the agency has a special relationship with the president because this is the phone you pick up uh, when there is a crisis, whether it's national uh, disasters of various sort or, or, or terrorist. And so that, and uh, thirdly, what would have been uh, more than enough uh, she has become president of probably the largest public university, research-wise, in the world, and clearly the United States. Uh, and the is, best. And, absolutely. <laughs> the reason why she became governor of Arizona was because she's very good at doing that. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start just the, the questions off, and I'm trying to ask what uh, people might do if, uh, if they're also students. Uh, first, you can't es escape the fact uh, at what point in your life did you decide you were going to go into elective politics? And there was, again, I'm pretending I forgot my American history, but there were periods when women didn't do it at the rate they did. And there you were entering uh, elective office, attorney general, running for governor. How did you make that decision? And my one uh, sort of amusing side is uh, her father was uh, uh, Dean of the University of Mexico School of Medicine. So I'm dying to know how he felt about that career choice. Yeah. Well, uh, a little bit about uh, how it came about. Um, uh, after uh, I graduated from law school, I moved to Arizona to clerk for a federal judge, which is a common thing uh, that lawyers do if they can't decide where they want to take the bar exam, which was my um, situation. <laughs> I decided to remain in Arizona. I practiced law with a law firm for 10 years, was a partner. Uh, when President Clinton was elected, uh, he was actually looking for women to fill some non-traditional roles. And one of those non-traditional roles was being the United States attorney. 
which is the chief federal prosecutor for a particular area. Uh, and Arizona is one federal region or district as they're called. Uh, so uh, that's a presidential appointment with Senate confirmation. So I went through the process. Um, and I had been serving as US attorney for a little over four years. Uh, I was 39. By then I was 39, uh, turning 40. Uh, and I had thought a little bit about uh, running for office, but not, not too seriously. But uh, the attorney generalship of Arizona was going to be an open seat. And I had this moment where I said, you know, I don't want to be in my older age, in my rocking chair, saying woulda, coulda, shoulda done something. And that the worst thing that would happen would be that I would lose and I'd go back to my law practice and have a very nice life and uh, do a lot of community-oriented or activities on the side. So from a, a risk analysis, um, that was that side. But I called my dad. He still lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I told him, Dad, I'm going to resign as U.S. attorney to run for attorney general. And there was a moment of silence on the phone. <laughs> My family, is, by the way, is not a family of lawyers and politicians or what have you. They're scientists and engineers and people like that. Uh, so I was kind of the, uh, the, the odd one out in that respect. And there's a moment of silence. Now imagine your kid calling you and telling you this. And, and he said, Janet, I want to understand. You were a partner in a law firm making X. Then you took a job as US attorney, which paid half of X. Now you're going to make no money for nine months while you campaign for a job that makes about a third of X. And he goes, I don't understand. And I, and I said, I'm not worried. He said, why not? And so I said, because the trust fund you've had for me my whole life, that you have been you know, keeping from me so that I would grow to be independent and hardworking, you can now share it with me. It's OK. And, and, That'll be all right. So no worries. So he laughed. Ha, ha. Anyway, a couple days later, I get a, a check in the mail made out to Janet98, my campaign fund. It was in the amount of $5. And it was signed Napolitano Trust Fund. And then he wrote on the ledger, exhaustion of principal and interest. So, uh, <laughs> so but. Um, uh, it was really one of a, it was a combination of things. It was uh, I felt at that point I had more than enough experience for the job, very interested in public service. Um, at a certain point, if you want to be in public service, you should consider running for office yourself. Uh, and it was uh, the the right time and the right office. And it was by no means a sure thing that I would win. I'm a Democrat. I was running in Arizona, not a state well known for electing I Democrats. I was going to wait one minute before I asked about that question. Um, and uh, it was a tough campaign, but uh, we did win. Uh, and then uh, three years later, the governorship was going to be an open seat. There's a strategy here. Uh, and I ran for governor. And that was probably my toughest campaign, was to win as governor. Um, and uh, I had a primary. I had a four-way primary. Uh, when that finished, uh, the general election up against a very tough uh, Republican uh, congressman, who was kind of their designated uh, guy to, to be the governor, uh, and the race was not actually decided till about five days after the election. Um, 
fortunately, when I ran for re-election as governor, we'd had a good run as governor. We'd done a lot of things, um, and uh, we had a lot of things in the queue uh, that we wanted to get done. So uh, my second race as uh, governor was declared the minute the polls closed. Uh, so uh, let's deal with the decision-making issues. You're elected governor, and you want to have things that really happen that are important. How do you go about doing that? How do you decide the kinds of people you're going to attract and appoint? Uh, how did you decide what your agenda was going to be? Uh, for that. There has to be some lessons learned, the sort of thinking ahead about you took over, you wanted it to be very different uh, when you left, but it's a very hard environment to get things done. It is. Um, and, and I had a legislature that was overwhelmingly Republican right. in both houses and con very, very conservative Republican. Uh, not too many moderates uh, left. Uh, well, I think you do a couple of things. Um, from an uh, management perspective, you, you have to figure out some key positions and fill them with key people um, during the transition period so that uh, the minute you are inaugurated, you are ready to go. Um, chief among those is your chief of staff because I've always believed in a model with a strong chief of staff. You can manage things differently. That's the way I choose to do it. Uh, a strong chief of staff and inner office um, uh, team, uh, and you pick a couple things. They have to be, obviously, they have to have the talents, they have to be smart, they have to be willing to work long hours. Um, uh, they have to be able to get along uh, and, and work with each other, sometimes in a very stressful atmosphere. You learn about some people that way during a campaign, but you learn about people that way in other roles as well. So you don't just pick from the campaign team. Um, I had a bipartisan transition team uh, because in, in the politics uh, and the place where I was, uh, I couldn't just have Democrats. I needed to be working with Republicans. And so uh, I co-chaired the transition team with a one R and one D. Um, uh, so the, the immediate team. And then you pick key members of the administration. For example, the the equivalent of the, of the health minister. Well, public health is a big issue for a governor. Um, and you want someone who is knowledgeable in the field, uh, who is not you know, learning from you know, elementary bases, but has some experience, uh, and someone you can trust to run uh, that institution well. Another key role for a governor is the head of corrections. Uh, unfortunately, in America, I think we have way too many people incarcerated. Prisons are large, complicated institutions, uh, and you need a really good corrections director. And that came to bear uh, not too long in my governorship when we had two of our guards taken hostage at a maximum security prison. And we actually were in a hostage negotiation there for almost two full weeks. 24-7, uh, and where there was a high likelihood that um, we were going to have fatalities. Uh, so uh, having a good corrections director with you at that time, absolutely key. The head of your Department of Revenue, uh, you know, not sexy, but boy, it's nuts and bolts stuff for a governor. You know, somebody's got to run the tax system. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, 
you need to have uh, uh, someone uh, experienced at the head of public safety. Um, in our state, the head of education was actually an elected position, hmm. so it was not one I controlled. But those were the key kind of cabinet roles uh, that uh, every governor has to find the right person for. How did you find them? You find them uh, a couple of ways. Uh, uh, word of mouth is a big way. Uh, uh, there's something called the National Governors Association. It has a staff. Um, that staff knows people around the country. They know people who know people. Uh, you talk to people who have been governors. Uh, who have they worked with? How did they do it? So there, it's all of that. Obviously, uh, these are public service jobs. They get posted. But the formal kind of process is not nearly as important as that informal one. So let's talk about the agenda. Yeah. Uh, you, even though it looks like it's forever, you take over and governor, you realize it's a very time-limited agenda. And you have to set some set of priorities and strategies to try to move things along. How did you decide what your priorities would be and strategies for trying to move that actually to happen in Arizona? couple of ways. Um, one, I was fortunate. I'd served as the U.S. Attorney and the Attorney General. I knew state government from the Attorney General job, and I knew kind of the underbelly of things that were, that were going on from being involved so much on, on the criminal justice side. I, I knew about the border. I knew uh, about uh, Arizona's issues with the cartels that were using the Arizona border. Uh, I was very knowledgeable about Indian country. Um, as a U.S. attorney, I was the prosecutor in Indian country. Um, and those are typically rural, high poverty areas. Um, so I, I had that experience behind me. And that was already shaping my vision. Second, Arizona State University had an institute called the Morrison Public Policy Institute. And they put out, early in that election, a very influential document called Five Shoes Ready to Drop on Arizona. And they had looked at the whole uh, uh, kind of tapestry of issues and had identified uh, early uh, childhood, uh, K-12, uh, immigration, et cetera. That, was, that paper was actually used by both sides in the debates. Um, so that, it was interesting. A lot of university papers don't actually get into the public sphere right. that actively. But that helped me set the agenda. And the third thing that helped me set the agenda was uh, looking at time and what I thought I could push through that the public would be with me on. So we focused on a couple of key things. One thing we focused on was having all-day kindergarten available for every child in Arizona. Um, because the, the data was persuasive, that that really helped close the gap so that first graders started more equivalently than they would otherwise. And then, that, therefore, first grade was more valuable, third grade's more valuable from first, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was a huge fight. Uh, the, the legislature didn't want to fund it. They want to fund half-day kindergarten, much less full-day. Um, Is it always around just the financial issues? or Well, that's there... how it's talked about. Yeah. Um, I actually think sometimes the financial issues cover for a lot of other things that are going on. But it was, it's a big dollar issue, yeah. and, and a big dollar issue for a very young state like Arizona. So, uh, but we managed to get that through. Um, uh, yeah. And 
that was one. Uh, higher education. I knew that our economy needed to grow from being a real estate-based, land-based economy. We needed to bring in things like some new research, like genomics, uh, referenced in the introduction. Um, and so that means you've got to have universities. And in the Western states, the public universities are the primary place people go. Uh, and, and that meant more funding uh, for universities. Also a terrific, terrific fight. Uh, but those were the, the kind of, I kind of had a vision of how we scope the education system with an idea to the economy that we would want to sustain in decades to come. So the, um, if you look back, what was the achievement you most remember and feel best about? And what was one you wished you did but didn't happen? Um, we could uh, just have a blank answer to yeah. that one. <laughs> uh, you can't do it all, yeah. uh, particularly when the headwinds are against yeah. you um, in the legislature. Uh, uh, and, and one of my roles, quite frankly, was being the backstop. Uh, because uh, during my tenure, I'm not proud of this necessarily, but it is a fact, I vetoed more than 150 bills. Yeah. And they never overrode a veto. Uh, but, but some of the bills were just bad. Some of them were sent to me on purpose because they knew I was going to veto them. <laughs> but some of them were just bad. Uh, I vetoed the first budget they sent me. They waited till the very end of the fiscal year. They were kind of calling my bluff. Because the budget they sent me had all their stuff and none of my stuff. That's not fair. Uh, as President Obama said at one time, I won the election. So, um, and elections have consequences. So uh, the clerk brought the, the budget document up to uh, the ninth floor where the governor's office is in, in the Capitol Tower. And uh, I was getting ready to veto it, and we realized that um, nobody could find the stamp. Uh, the veto, there's a, you know, it's a stamp, right? Nobody could find it. Well, it turns out that governors take veto stamps with them as kind of souvenirs when they leave. And anyway, so I had to send somebody up to Staples to get a veto stamp. And they came down. I said, get a self-inking one, because we're going to use it a lot, I suspect. But anyway, so they sent me this budget, and I met the clerk. Uh, uh, almost literally at the elevator, said, don't leave. We were ready. Sent it back. Uh, they sent me another one. I was able, with that one, with line item veto authority, to make it much better. Uh, and we got through, and, and every year we got through on time with a balanced budget. But it was always that kind of last minute uh, tussle uh, to, to get it done. Uh, so maybe serving as the, the finger in the dike uh, was an important role that I played. Um, I, I think that um, a lot of what we did with early childhood education ha has had an important role, although once I left and uh, the government changed hands, they repealed all-day kindergarten. Uh, nonetheless, the table was set, and now I see more and more going into early ed in Arizona by the initiative process, yes. uh, which is a vote of the people as opposed to the legislature. Uh, and I feel good about that. And I feel good about uh, how we were able to grow uh, higher ed while I was there. Although, again, since I've gone, it's been under duress. Um, so those are things I feel good about. Uh, lots of things uh, I, I, I would have worked on 
uh, more. I, not done on the education front. I, I think child welfare uh, was a big issue, remains an issue. There's an article in the New York Times today about child welfare in Arizona. Uh, and, it, and we had made a lot of progress. I think there was a lot of backtrack after I left. Uh, but the protection of children, I believe, is a key role when the family uh, is either not present or is incapable of protecting a child. Uh, so uh, I, I would have wanted to do more in that arena. Uh, and then finally, we were not able to really change the economics of Arizona. And changing economics is very tough, and it's a very long-term thing. Uh, but it is still primarily an economy based on, uh, on land and real estate. So when the recession hit, it, it hit that state very, very hard. Uh, Betty Johnson, do we want to take some questions that people sent in? Yes, thanks, Bob. We have a question from our in-audience um, um, student here today. And first it says, as a former governor of Arizona, you have a good gauge of the political climate in which the state is currently embedded. How would you propose pushing health to the forefront of the state's needs, given the diversity and budget of the state? I think uh, uh, it, it's, it, it's interesting that um, health hasn't occupied a higher uh, ranking on, on, on the agenda. Um, I, I think sometimes when we segregate health from everything else, it, 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 you lose that political connection you need to have with people. Um, one uh, thing uh, I would suggest is that uh, we focus not only on cures or research, but how we deal with the, the way the health systems have to change with the now aging of the baby, baby boomer population. Uh, people don't want to go into nursing homes. Right. Uh, they don't even want to go into assisted care facilities. They want to, a lot of them want to have the option, the choice of staying in home. Well, how do you do that and get them adequate care? Well, that means you've got to uh, have a whole cadre of trained uh, uh, people who are public health associates. They may be uh, LPNs. Uh, uh, they may be uh, RNs or other types of nurses, other kinds of health professionals who are riding the circuit uh, uh, going around. Um, how do you provide transportation? How do you make sure people are eating and eating well? How do you make sure people don't get isolated in their, in their homes? Uh, because that lack of human contact has a real health aspect to it. Can a governor play a lead role in getting that done? Yes, I think a governor actually can. First of all, a governor can state the problem and, and, and hopefully in a way that resonates with people. And I think if you talk about that, you will find so many people who are, uh, I don't know how old you are, my age, um, you know, who are dealing with... Uh, uh, getting their children educated right. and so forth, and now dealing with an aging parent who may want to move in with them. I think we have a course called Sandwich Generation. Yeah, the yes. sandwiches. Right. So uh, I think there are ways to express yeah. this. Um, and then you need your health professionals to help you scope out, well, what, what is a new way to think of that healthcare delivery system? 
How do you do it? How do you pay for it? What is the federal government's role there? So um, uh, in terms of the question asked, I would say um, uh, take a step back and, and, and look at segments of the population uh, that you know are large and are going to have a whole confluence of issues. Betty, one more, and then we'll yes, switch to Yes, one more question security. in this area coming from our online audience. What did your perspective as governor bring to your role at Homeland Security? Perfect. Well, that's a segue question. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> very good. Um, uh, a lot. In fact, I think having that was one of the reasons the president asked me uh, to do the job, because in Homeland Security, you have to know the public safety community. Right. Uh, you have to know and deal with natural disasters. You know, FEMA is part of right. uh, the Department of Homeland Security, a uh, very important part of Homeland Security. Uh, you have to have experience dealing in issues like public health. Uh, we were talking about the U.S. response to the H1N1 epidemic happened very early yeah. in President Obama's term, before we had a Secretary of Health and before we had a Director of CDC. Um, so in, in terms of the, of the huge range of missions that the Department of Homeland Security has, there's a big part of it that relates right to dealing with governors and mayors and people on the ground in the United States. So uh, there was uh, a lot, all of that experience I took with me to Washington. So the, uh, for those of you who can go online, uh, they are the largest number of agencies, many of them to someone far distant are not completely related. And how you get that culture to work together. How do you make a department where the Coast Guard and FEMA and uh, immigration groups uh, work together in some coherent way uh, 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 for that. And then you are liaison with the president who somehow expects if he or she picks up the phone and there's some problem, there is a response. How do you go about thinking about that? Homeland Security uh, formed after the attack of 9-11. 23 separate agencies, all from different legacy departments, et cetera, merged together. Some new ones created. Yes. To add to the mix, um, responsibilities for terrorism, counterterrorism, responsibilities for immigration, both that, you know, the legal flow of people to and from the United States, as well as immigration uh, enforcement, natural disasters, uh, FEMA, responsible for securing the coasts of the United States, that's the Coast Guard, uh, cybersecurity of the United States within the jurisdiction. Uh, uh, where public health is concerned, there's actually an Office of Health Affairs within the department. It has statutory jurisdiction in certain types of epidemic or pandemic situations. So you have that. You have your own intelligence analysis uh, operation. You work with uh, the CIA. You work with the FBI. You work with all the other intel apparatus of the United States, but you have your own as well. Um, you have all of that. You have about a quarter of a million people who report to you. Uh, uh, you have the third largest department uh, budget-wise uh, in the United States government and personnel-wise, next to Defense and Veterans Administration. Uh, you have 105 committees of the Congress who exercise jurisdiction. Um, and you have no headquarters building, by the way. Uh, you office out of an old Navy depot up by the National <laughs> Cathedral uh, in, um, in D.C. So it's a really easy job. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, no challenges whatsoever. Um, uh, 
I would say many, if not most people who are really familiar with the federal government would, would name the Department of Homeland Security as, as the, uh, one of the two or three toughest jobs in, in the government. Because uh, you are in the barrel online all the time, every day, regardless. Um, so one of the, the first things I had to do was learn about the department. And my predecessor, Mike Chertoff, was very good. He had a transition team. No Democrat had led the department. I was, the only, I was only the third secretary. I was still serving as the governor of Arizona. I couldn't be sitting in Washington, D.C. transitioning. So um, he sent teams out to Phoenix uh, to start getting me briefed uh, between the election and the inauguration. Of course, they had to leave D.C., which was freezing, and come to Phoenix, where it was in the <laughs> 70s. So I think they were okay with that part. But I remember coming out of my, my office door and seeing uh, some, this guy walking down my hallway with a dolly filled with these huge binders, literally from top to bottom, two of them. That was my initial round of briefing materials. So I knew I had a challenge ahead of me. Here's what I did. First thing I did, and this is one of the first things I did as governor, one of the first things I think anyone parachuting into a, a large department or agency needs to do, I dove into the budget. And uh, I had them walk me through you know, what was mandatory, what was discretionary, uh, which funds went where, why was this this way, this way, why wasn't this here, et cetera. Um, and you know, that makes for a pretty dry reading, but is absolutely essential if you're going to manage uh, a government department. You need to know your budget. You need to know the acronyms. Uh, sounds funny, but in government, people speak in acronyms. And uh, I finally asked for a glossary from DHS because I couldn't understand the memos. And I got 94 single space pages of acronyms from the Department of Homeland Security. I think there's an app for it now, actually. Um, uh, and uh, you, you begin to become familiar with who's at the department. And just as you do as a governor, uh, understanding uh, who needs to be in your key office team, what are some of the key spots within the department, figuring that out uh, for DHS. Are they different than when you were governor? I mean, different types of people, different type, or it's the same thing, a strong chief of staff? Um, yeah, I used a strong uh, chief of staff model, but different from governor, there's actually a deputy secretary at DHS. I, I didn't have a lieutenant governor yeah. in Arizona. We don't have that organizational style structure. Um, and so, and she's also, she was also a presidential appointment, Senate confirmed. Uh, and the heads of the major operating components were all presidential appointments, Senate confirmed. So they were coming in, taking over large departments themselves with their own basis of authority and uh, backing from the White House. They had been, you know, I didn't know them uh, by and large. Uh, so we became very familiar with each other very quickly. But it made picking that inner office team all the more important. So I brought with me some people from Arizona. Uh, you know, everybody's excited. It's the Obama administration. Uh, it was great excitement. Let's right. let's go to Washington. Um, and so we we brought a number uh, with us, and then uh, uh, you know learn in over time, you know how to how to put the operational components together in a in a logical way. 
So the major heads of the divisions are not actually selected by the secretaries. They, they are not. They are not. No. So, but as as did we, that turn out to be a problem? Not really, because no. um, as as we went forward, the administration was very careful uh, uh, to make sure that I at least had the opportunity to interview somebody okay. and talk with them. Uh, but nonetheless, you don't really get to know people until you're working with them day to day. So we had to learn how, how to do that. And then the department was spread out all over Washington, D.C. As I mentioned, there was no, it's not like the Pentagon uh, where you go to one place. I mean, it was literally, you know, uh, in, I think it was, I think we had something like 64 different buildings and offices within, within the uh, district and then into Maryland and Northern Virginia. So how do you arrange that? How do you stay in touch? How do you manage? Um, what happens when you have something occurring where you need the participation of the TSA, the CBP, FEMA, the Coast Guard, uh, the Office of Health Affairs, the Office of Intel Analysis, uh, the National Protection uh, Directorate, uh, and maybe the, even the Secret Service? Uh, so how do you do that? How do you? You do it by... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a couple things. Uh, one is I established regular, bi-weekly, every other week meetings with the major component heads. So they were talking with each other, at least in that context. Uh, secondly, um, we developed a system of uh, conference calls uh, and a whole protocol for uh, how we stayed in touch during a crisis. If People needed to be at their places monitoring what they did, but needed to be in touch with each other. Um, and uh, that system, we evolved it during my secretaryship, but it became very effective. Uh, uh, thirdly, um, uh, always looking for problems to be addressed in a multi, within the department, intra-departmental way. Part of this is just creating a culture of working together, not, not always on your own, and realizing the capabilities of other aspects of the department with whom you may have been a competitor uh, before DHS right. was created. Uh, so uh, just a couple more, and then we'll uh, go to the questions. Uh, as, as governor, in some senses, you were your own boss. Now you're heading this huge agency, but it relates to the White House in different ways. Is that a problem when you take over being a cabinet secretary, where the relationships with the White House is kind of idyllic? No. Um, well, it is, it's a change. It's yeah. a real transition. You know, as a governor, you, you, you're kind of like the president yes. of your state. Yes, right. Um, and you get used to that. It's kind of cool. <laughs> uh, when you join the cabinet, you're taking an oath um, uh, to support the president. And you, to enforce the laws of the United States, the Constitution of the United States, but you are part of a team of an administration led by the president of the United States. Um, and uh, that was an adjust. I adjusted pretty quickly. Um, uh, I think at the staff level, in some respects, it was a more difficult adjustment. Uh, and you know, learning uh, who, when the White House called, um, look, there are a lot of people who work at the White House, from the president <laughs> down to, you know, a 19-year-old intern. 
a 19-year-old intern may call saying I'm from the White House doesn't mean I have to answer the phone. So uh, you know, just just kind of getting used to okay, who are the key players in the White House, uh, and when the White House calls, where does where should that appropriately be referred to uh, within the department? Eddie, yes. This question comes from our online audience. You are no stranger to controversial and polarizing policy issues. <laughs> when you think about issues, however, you faced at uh, Homeland Security, are there lessons particularly for aspiring leaders, current leaders, or even the U.S. Congress? Yeah. The last one's a tough one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the most difficult issue I confronted at the department was immigration. It was difficult personally. I mean, I've lived almost my whole life in a border. I grew up in New Mexico. I'd spent most of my adult life in Arizona. Uh, and I have a very, I, I, I think, a, a view about the back and forth of immigration vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States, Mexico, and, and indeed Central America. Uh, and you know, the notion that there's real commerce, there's a lot of things that go on uh, at borders, and borders need to be effective borders. They're, they're not walls. Uh, and uh, so I had that vision for the border. Um, the immigration laws of the United States sorely need comprehensive reform. They, they just do not match. Uh, reality in some respects. Um, but yet my job and, and the job of ICE was to enforce those laws. So how do you do that in the best way possible while you're knocking your head over on the hill trying to get immigration reform through? We got it through the Senate. The House would never hear it. So frustrating. Uh, and I think one of the issues uh, that as a nation we need to address if we're really going to thrive as much as we can in the, in the years to come. So uh, I was charged with enforcing the immigration laws even as I was trying to reform the immigration laws. That is a very difficult position to be in. And, I, and uh, I've lost a lot of sleep over that uh, over, over, over the years. Um, we set priorities uh, about which cases should go first. Translating those priorities into an, an, an agent's actions in the field, very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, we did invent uh, DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, but we did that only after it was so clear that even the DREAM Act was not going to pass uh, the Congress. And how unfair was it for the United States to punish young people who, in, were not responsible for being in the United States without documentation, but they were here. They'd grown up here. They were ready to go to college here. Yeah. Uh, and so we invented uh, DACA, which now I think the current number of students who are DACA uh, enrolled is around 700,000. Um, uh, but we knew that would face opposition in the Congress, in the courts, et cetera. Uh, but it's there. It exists. Students are enrolled in it. Um, I remember very distinctly being at a hearing at the Senate Judiciary Committee 
and I'm the only witness, so you're in this table, and the senators are up there, and you know, the audience is behind you, and the senator from Alabama is, uh, you know, going at me saying, you're not enforcing the immigration laws, you know, bad secretary, bad secretary, and in, in the back, I have a bunch of people with signs saying, you know, basically, uh, you're over-enforcing the immigration laws, bad secretary, bad secretary, and, uh, and, and I really felt then physically how much in the middle on immigration being the DHS secretary is. The, uh, uh, I'm afraid that the uh, audience in California will say that he has an East Coast uh, prejudice. He hasn't asked about the University of California. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the time remaining, I think we have to switch to your third role as president of the University of California. Uh, that must be a nice, quiet job in comparison to <laughs> Homeland Security. No, it's, I, would, I would say, well, let me give you a sense of yeah. scale. So the, our budget is right around $26 billion a year, right? When I left Arizona, the budget for the entire state was $9.8 billion. The budget for the state now is like $9.1 billion. If, if the University of California were a state, it would probably be number 12 to 15, right around in there in terms of the size of the budget. So let's not pretend that when we put university of in front of the name, that it is this mild-mannered, nice, <laughs> soft academic environment where I can think great thoughts and, you know, whatever. Isn't that how you think of it? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and in, in some respects, uh, uh, it's a, you know, I took it on because I love the mission. I'm motivated by public service, and I think education is just the way you do so many things. And I think public higher education is the one proven tactic we've had in this country for social mobility. So, uh, so the mission, uh, I was excited about the mission. Um, I had told the president after his reelect that another year or so is at DHS, but as you can tell from our discussion, um, uh, it's, a, it, it's a physically exhausting job, right. among other things. Right. And I really thought it would benefit by some fresh eyes. Uh, and I thought, boy, what did I enjoy doing in Arizona? I, I love the education, and I love the higher education stuff. Um, uh, so I thought, well, that would be kind of nice, you know, be president of the university. Neat. Cool. <laughs> and I wanted to move back west. I'm a westerner. Uh, and there are differences. Um, <laughs> no comment. Uh, I mean, I like the East. I mean, you know, except for the Yankees yeah. baseball team. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, but, um, uh, and then I got a call from a headhunter. Uh, you know, they, well, the University of California is looking for a president. Would I be interested? And I said, would they be interested? <laughs> Because I'm not going to say I'm interested until they say they're interested. <laughs> it's like high school. So um, <laughs> as I called back, he said, yeah, they're very interested. And I went through the process um, and was fortunate to be selected. And we have lots of challenges. Why? Uh, in part because uh, public higher education in this country is in an enormous period of evolution uh, where the public um, is unwilling to invest at as much as it did previously. We don't understand, I don't understand why that is, but I think it's a fact. Um, 
But at the same time, the need to provide a quality higher education, particularly one with uh, access to uh, learning about the research process, um, uh, is absolutely key to the United States' ability to thrive in this century. Um, so uh, dealing with that, uh, uh, dealing with the politics of can you ever raise tuition, uh, even if you promise that over half the California students don't, won't pay the tuition, can you ever raise it? Uh, how many out-of-state students can you admit uh, to help, help you financially, among other things? Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, the different constituencies of, of a university, in particularly the faculty and the students, and, and uh, uh, relations uh, with, with, with those across a broad, broad spectrum. So it's a, it is a rewarding post, but perhaps my most, uh, in, in a way, immense, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to beat DHS for complexity. Um, I was going to say. It's, I don't think you can do that, but I can say than schools. every experience yeah. that I have had in the, way, in the way of trying to lead and persuade and bring people along and have a broader vision and a longer-term view, all of those things are being brought to bear. And uh, it's funny, I talked to people in D.C., and they, they, they kind of think I'm relaxing. Hey, yes. you look so much more relaxed, and I'm thinking... <laughs> Really, I must have looked terrible when I was uh, secretary <laughs> because we're, we're really we're really pounding it out out there. The uh, is your strategy about trying to move ahead differently than in the other roles you took on? Is having students and faculty make you think very differently about how you bring about change, or is it similar? Um, it's different, uh, uh, and learning about. For example, in a research university, the notion or the principles of shared governance with the faculty. The faculty are the ones who uh, control the curricular process, uh, what goes into a curriculum, uh, what constitutes a degree, um, uh, the uh, tenure process, um, and, and, I, and, to be, and I'm very respectful of the principles of shared sure. governance. But I had to learn about it. I mean, it's not something that I right. was familiar with. Uh, um, and, and, realize, and the student, students have our broad spectrum from, uh, you know, grad students uh, of the highest caliber doing the most amazing research, not just in the STEM disciplines, but in the humanities and right. the arts and the uh, qualitative social sciences and public policy, all of those fields, um, down to, or across to, I should say, across to students who have a particular er uh, area of interest in one uh, political issue, and they want to push that agenda forward. Um, and so you have to deal with that. And, and then learning about California politics. And California politics, California, you know, it's 38 million people. It could be its own country. And, and so... Uh, getting a crash course in the politics out there, so all of that coming to play, coming to bear. The uh, with the last few minutes, uh, sitting in our audience, who, people who would like at some time to be sitting right where you are, is there advice that we can give to the next generation? Things they can do, things that they think about in terms of the choices and uh, essentially mission that you had that you would give them. 
I think, um, look, uh, first of all, uh, I find public service a passion. I mean, I, I just believe that what, whatever talents I have, that's how I want to spend, spend them. Um, and that helps you get through the tough times. Because in public service, there are tough times if you're going to be in a leadership role. And you, and you go through, I call it earning your calluses. And uh, some, some say getting a thick skin. But even the thickest of skins can get um, pierced at times. Uh, so, um, but, so you have to have something that causes you to keep the engine running. And I have it. I, I don't know how I got it. I have it. Uh, and I love what I do, and I, and I love being able uh, to meet somebody in an airport who comes up and says, you know, you helped me do this, you helped my family do that, et cetera. That's tremendously rewarding. You need to have a way to keep that in mind. You need to create a broader vision. If all you do is deal with the crisis du jour, um, you can never actually move a large institution forward. And large institutions, by and large, take time to move. You don't do it in nine months or a year, 18 months. You try to do it within two or three. But it takes time. And you've got to have the patience and the persistence to stay, to stay at it and have the courage of your convictions about what you're doing. Um, and then lastly, I would say, um, leaders are human beings, too. Um, and you have to uh, figure out um, how you want to balance the rest of your life so that, from a, a mental standpoint, you can stay in balance. Um, uh, for me, you know, I like going to live music. I like going to the movies. You know, I like going hiking. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and then you have to be disciplined enough to tell your staff that that's your time and that they can't schedule over your time, <laughs> which they will, by the way. Uh, uh, because, as I said, if you're going to persist uh, over the long haul, you, you've got to take care of yourself as a human being, too. Let me close. Thank you very, very much for an incredible session. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.